0: And then today our scripture reading is out of Romans 12:9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil; hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer.
1: Thanks be to God, never avenge yourselves. Three loud bangs startled me out of a peaceful slumber. Sometime after midnight, the spring semester of my sophomore year in college, somebody was knocking on the door to our dorm room. And by the volume of the knocks, it seemed as though the need for our prompt attention was urgent. I looked over and I saw my sleepy roommate bolt out of his bed in a half-dazed and confused state. He jumped to the ground, ran to the door, and carelessly, I might add, swung the door wide open without trepidation. Now, before I explain what happened next, there's something you need to understand about me when I was in college, and that's that I loved A good prank which got me in trouble from time to times and the events that followed apparently the best we can tell were the result of accelerating pranks I'm not exactly sure which one might have led to something like this but it's not difficult to imagine that some minor prank in my mind at least caused somebody to ratchet it up a few levels because when my roommate opened the door to our room, a 55-gallon plastic barrel filled with water that had been tilted ever so slightly against our door came crashing down, covering our room with water, covering our sweetmate's mate's room with water, even spilling over into Matt Maddox's room. I don't know if you remember that, but it spilled across the hallway into Matt's room. A Juvenile retaliatory measure, in in my humble opinion. Retaliation is perhaps one of the most basic human instincts. Functioning out of a place of hurt, responding to maybe genuine harm, it is very normal to feel that desire rise within our hearts, a desire to repay evil with evil. I think many of us, if we're honest, probably feel that urge from time to time. You know, there can be something very moving about films that tell stories of revenge. If you're anything like me, that, that can really grip your heart. Stories of destroying the one who sought destruction. I think there's something about those stories that can excite and satisfy the human heart. But you juxtapose those kind of stories with a story of a different kind, one that is probably much less common, but maybe even more exhilarating because of its rarity, and because of the revolutionary nature of a posture of forgiveness and mercy. Last month, Nanette and I were able to see Les Mis live for the first time. And if, if you've read that book or Seen the movie or the production, you know that it's an incredibly moving, powerful story, exploring some of these themes of mercy and forgiveness in the context of the French Revolution near the end of the 18th century. But near the beginning, the story's protagonist, Jean Valjean, after experiencing an unexpected act of grace from a priest who had every right to extend punishment, but instead extends mercy and welcomes this character into that posture, and you see a fundamental shift take place in his life. A shift that in part moves him from a posture of seeking retribution to one that is willing to extend mercy. And if you've seen it, you are probably familiar with this. In a dramatic moment, he sings, I'm not going to sing it, but he sings this line, take an eye for an eye, turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for, this is all I have known. Take an eye for an eye, turn your heart into stone. From this point forward, Jean Valjean surprises the audience with audacious mercy in moments when retaliation is expected, not only expected, but even longed for. A story where mercy very clearly triumphs over Judgment, Where love is extended to and prayers offered on behalf of enemies. And this is a story that is founded upon the teachings of Jesus in the sermon we are reading in Matthew chapter 5. We'll pick it up where we left off in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We'll pause there. Because I think the goodness and wisdom of this stipulation found in the Mosaic Law needs to be stressed. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in the context in which the law is delivered, this provided for the people a needed check. First of all, it instituted a helpful and even necessary limit on the justice that was to be enacted. A limit that would, oh, I, I don't know, let's say, prevent somebody from dumping 55 gallons of water into a dorm room in response to a harmless prank done in good fun. No, But, but seriously, it tempered some of the outlandish, some of the unreasonable revenge, that normal human ten- tendency to retaliate. Well, That person embarrassed me so I'm going to absolutely crush them and make sure they never forget my act of rage. I can't be measured in my response to that offense or else they won't learn the very important lesson not to mess with me. So this stipulation in the law required some limits. At the same time, it did highlight the need for justice in a healthy functioning society. So just as it is possible for us to push our personal pursuit of justice to the extreme, you look at me wrong, well, you deserve death. I I think we all agree that is an extreme. It is also possible to jump to the other extreme, where there has been genuine harm, severe, life-altering harm, maybe even something like abuse. So a slap on the wrist or a stern talking to may not be helpful in that situation. Now, it's quite natural, even as we recognize a need for justice, it's quite natural that we would have disagreements on what the proper execution of justice in society might entail. But justice is an undeniable good and necessary thing in society. This command, though, is a reminder for God's people that justice is not a free-for-all. It certainly isn't a free-for-all in terms of something like vigilante justice or extreme, incommensurate acts of retaliation and and revenge or, or torture that is used to make a point. So the question remains for God's people, well, how do we promote justice in society without becoming captured or obsessed with vengeance? And the law addresses this challenging issue like this. If an eye or a tooth is lost, justice is limited to an eye or a tooth from the perpetrator. Societies need justice, but it can't be the sort of mob justice like we see in something like The Godfather where a minor offense results in a lifelong personal vendetta against someone. No, an eye for an eye, and that is it. So this is how the law addresses these issues. Now, this law to our modern ears might sound fairly retributive or violent, maybe even barbaric but in this context as scholar Dale Bruner argues it was actually quite civilized it was advanced and quite just for that age in fact the fourth century church father Saint Chrysostom argued that while this law an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth might sound to our ears like it's a a very cruel thing to require it would actually have been much more cruel in that context not to give this command. Societies need justice, but it needs to be measured. That's the sort of tension the law is trying to navigate. Crimes must be addressed, but they must be addressed in a way that fits the crime. So this is what the law says. Now, Jesus comes along. And as he has been doing throughout the sermon, says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. The law addresses crime and punishment. The law addresses these issues of justice societally in this way. But I say to you, I am calling you, my disciples, into a particular way of life. So however society handles justice, that's a, a, a different issue. I say to you, my disciples, verse 39 Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, the first instruction we find in this section, our translation renders as do not resist, which sounds a bit extreme. And and many, many scholars think that that translation is actually too broad and that it actually means something closer to do not set yourself against or do not take Revenge on, or do not ever try to get even with the evil one. So, retribution, revenge, and resistance are not necessarily synonymous. In fact, peaceful resistance has a rich tradition within the Christian faith. Resistance of evil, I would suggest, is a holy and worthwhile calling. Retaliation and revenge are not. We might think of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, which actively sought to resist the persistent sins of racism, even in the recent history of our country. Or we might think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, where he instructs his followers to confront a brother who is in sin. Those are not postures of resignation in the face of sin and evil, but active resistance that is actually demonstrated by Jesus, and I think we are invited into. But what Jesus does call his people to is to release the need and the desire to exact revenge. You hurt me, I hurt you. You insult me, I insult you. You dehumanize me, I dehumanize you. Jesus says, no, we we do not revenge or retaliate when wronged. We don't want to allow our resistance of evil or even the appropriate disgust with oppression. We don't want to allow that to lead us into sin or to cause us to become an oppressor so while we are willing to and we want to pursue justice in any way we can we want to be willing to refuse to take vengeance as Paul urged us in our scripture reading in Romans 12 we leave vengeance to God we refuse to repay evil with evil thought echoed in first Peter chapter 3 a consistent theme that runs throughout our scriptures, one that is difficult, if you're anything like me, one that is difficult to hear. Because to be honest with you, my initial impulse, if I am hurt, even if it is a really minor offense, my impulse is, all right, you want to disrespect me, then it's time to get even. Or that old bumper sticker slogan, I don't get even, I get ahead. Jesus says, not so with my people. You resist, sure. And he gives some examples of creative countercultural resistance. It's not just resignation in the face of evil. You're slapped on the cheek, you turn your other cheek. A shocking action that might pull that oppressor or the evildoer out of those harmful patterns turn the other cheek, walk another mile, do something that resists evil in a way that promotes good. That popular proverb attributed to Gandhi, Gandhi, of course, was greatly influenced by Tolstoy's arguments in the kingdom of God is within you, but also maybe even more so inspired by these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, but That well-known proverb, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. In other words, if revenge is our guiding principle, the cycle never ends. I think it's safe to say that we've all been victims of hurt, insults to varying degrees, maybe even violence. We have also all caused hurt. So in a way, we are all victim and perpetrator, and as such, it doesn't require much effort to imagine a world with many missing eyes. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say, do not resist, do not seek revenge or retaliation against the evil one. We continue reading in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So again, Jesus points the hearer back to the law. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. We're taken back to Leviticus 19. But I don't recall in that text, or really any other like it, a command to hate an enemy. But we do find that occasionally a love of God led God's people to a hate of the godless. We might think of the famous imprecatory Psalms. Or we might think of moments where spite or what seems an awful lot like hate is expressed toward enemies. We might think of something like the extermination of the Canaanites. Zealous love for God at times appeared to be synonymous with hatred of those who stood opposed to God, And his people. Jesus says you've heard it said. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. But I say to you. Remember Jesus sums up. The entirety of the law by saying. This is the first and greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And a second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself, all of it is summed up under the banner of love, but as Brian Zond has said, according to Jesus, or the biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. The biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. How do we know we are loving God? Are we loving our neighbor? How do we know if we are loving our neighbor? Are we willing to love our enemy? Because this is how Jesus fulfills the law in this regard. Verse 44, but I say to you, so you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And I think one of the things taking place in this instruction from Jesus is a reframing of our concept of an enemy. Because our only real enemy is the enemy of God, and the only enemy of God, it's not other people. It's very natural for us, I think, to experience feelings of hate for a human enemy that has caused us so harm. I think we all feel that. But we must not forget that even those who might be classified as our enemies, even those who persecute, those responsible for genuine evil, they too are victims of the real enemy, the enemy of sin, death, hell, and the grave. The real enemy God stands in opposition to are the powers and principalities from which Jesus delivers us. You know, in a sermon based on this very text that we're reading this morning, Martin Luther King Jr., famously, and and I would say prophetically, offers such helpful, although very difficult to hear, but helpful thoughts. You're probably familiar with some of these. I just want to mention a couple of them. One, hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence, just as injurious to the one who hates as it is to the victim. And then probably the most popular line from the sermon, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Love that is not reserved for friends, but one that can transform an enemy into a friend. I recently had a a friend share with me their practice of visualizing, hugging the individual or individuals who had harmed them, which was a very revealing exercise for them, one that is also quite difficult to put yourself through, but maybe would reveal where you are in the process of forgiveness. Obviously not excusing harm that has been done. There is that need for justice, but we don't want to allow that need for justice to turn us into somebody who hates another human being giving a warm embrace to a friend is easy. It's natural, at least for those of us who are huggers. And I happen to be a hugger. I know that not everybody is, and that's fine. Showing love to those who love us is is normal. Even those who don't build their lives around the ethic of Jesus show that kind of love. Jesus is calling his people into a radical form of love. One that doesn't really makes sense in in my thinking. But not only does he invite us into this way of life, but he also embodies it and shows us that it is possible. I want to turn our attention to Luke chapter 23, an appropriate Lenten text for us to begin to wrap this up. Beginning in verse 32, I'll, I'll read a section from this chapter. As Luke is describing some of the events of the Passion, he says this, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, it's difficult to say which part of this story is the most surprising. I think on one hand, the restraint that Jesus demonstrates is, is remarkable and unimaginable. I and mean, he, by his own admission, doesn't have to go through with this. You know, in Matthew 26, when Judas betrays him with a kiss and Peter takes out his sword and strikes the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear, Undoubtedly in an effort to save Jesus from this moment. And Jesus responds not only by healing the man who has been struck, but also by saying, put your sword back. Don't you know that I could appeal to the Father and he would send 12 legions of angels, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. He could call on the Father to deliver him from this moment. How does he not opt for that faced with this? ridicule as the mocking voices jeer he saved others but can't even save himself missing out of of course on the bigger picture that this act of sacrifice wrought salvation for all of humanity so on one hand I think his restraint to me at least seems impossible but perhaps what is even more striking than his restraint is the active declaration of forgiveness Think back to our text from Matthew chapter 5 in concert with what we've just read from Luke's Gospel. The evil one, the one who slaps your cheek as Jesus has been physically and psychologically tortured, spat on, struck, whipped, and will eventually be killed. The one who takes your tunic as they cast lots and divide his garments. The one who forces you to go one mile as he is forced to carry his own cross to the place of his execution. This is what he endures as these words escape his lips. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, on one hand, this is wonderful news for all of us in here because we are recipients of that sort of forgiveness. And we rejoice in that. In a moment, we are going to celebrate that forgiveness around this table. But I think it's important that we also acknowledge that this is the life he calls us into. There's nothing in me that is naturally inclined to respond in this way to even the most minor offense. To respond with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And yet this is the difficult path Jesus has called us into. He models it for us as a possibility, but also explicitly calls us into this way of life. My prayer for each of us in here is that we would be willing to continue walking the journey of learning how in the world is that possible? How can I begin to make steps in living this out? probably going to be a lifelong journey for all of us because it is not easy. This is the life we're called to. As followers of the one who extends mercy, grace, and forgiveness, we are invited into that path. I want to invite you to stand. As we prepare to gather around the table of our Lord, I want to invite you to, into a moment of prayer with me as we celebrate the life that we have in Jesus Christ, represented in His body and His blood. We receive the gift of grace, we receive the gift of mercy, and we accept that call. We're gonna make two lines down these center aisles. will come to the front. When you get to the front, somebody will be here to speak these words over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. As you come, receive the forgiveness and mercy of God. We're gonna say a prayer by way of invitation. I'll invite you to say it with me. I also wanted to mention Um, Josh and Kara are going to be available for prayer over on this side of the room at the front. If you have a uh, need in your life that you would like somebody to agree in prayer for that need, we'd invite you to, to, to come over here and Josh and Kara would be happy to pray with you. But let's all pray together as we receive the forgiveness of God and accept his call into this kind of life. as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying to self that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord this morning?